Would you turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2 and the glorious event recorded there at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. Now, you might be thinking, but Pastor John, why are we looking at a Pentecost text on Easter Sunday? Well, that's because Acts chapter 2 is not a, just a Pentecost text. We shouldn't think of it like that. Uh, there's a lot going on here. The fact is, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 proves who Jesus is. He is the crucified, he is the resurrected Messiah and Lord. And there is as much emphasis on the person of the crucified and resurrected Jesus in Peter's sermon as there is the Holy Spirit. So if you look at your bulletin, you can see the outline of where we're going this morning. First, we have the historical event itself, the fulfillment of centuries of biblical prophecy. Point number one, the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the first 13 verses of the text, followed by Peter's explanation of that event. Point number two, the Holy Spirit's coming proves Jesus is the resurrected Lord Messiah. We now live in the new age of the Holy Spirit when God has poured out his spirit upon all people, upon all flesh. This new age of the spirit has been ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah. And Peter's sermon includes nine verses devoted to Jesus' resurrection, which makes this an excellent Easter Sunday text. Point C, God raised Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead in accordance with Scripture and was seen by witnesses. And to prove this, that it's in accordance with the Scriptures, the apostle takes his listeners back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 16, a psalm of David, a psalm which prophesies Jesus' resurrection from death 1,000 years before it occurred. Point D, Jesus' Messiahship was confirmed by God in exalting Jesus to his right hand and bestowing upon him the name above every name. He is the Lord. Beloved, every year on Easter Sunday, the Church of Christ all over the world holds up the historical event of Jesus' resurrection to the light of God's holy word and shows off the wonder Shows off the splendor of God's glory and grace in the gospel of his dear son. Jesus is alive. His tomb is empty. He is risen. So, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the promised gift, the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. That's the good news the church has proclaimed to a fallen world these 2,000 years. And God's grace assisting me, it's the same gospel I want to preach to you today. Now, Luke begins his narrative with a brief matter-of-fact reference to the time and place of the Holy Spirit's coming. The place, as we see in verse 2, is a house in Jerusalem. The time, verse 1, is the day of Pentecost, a Jewish harvest festival. And Pentecost means 50th, because this festival was celebrated on the 50th day after the presentation at the temple of the first sheaf of barley harvest, which is also the 50th day from the first Sunday after Passover. Pentecost has a number of names within Judaism. Uh, it, was, it was also called the Feast of Weeks and also the Day of First Fruits. 
And when the, first, when the Spirit comes, we read there are three phenomena, three marvelous occurrences which attend his appearance. There is a sound, a sight, and a given ability to speak in an unlearned language. And please note, I'm using the personal pronoun he or him in reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the triune God. That The Spirit is not an it. He is co-equal. He is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. But sometimes our, our speech and our prayers aren't as precise on that point as they need to be. Look at verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's important to note. It's not that the 120 believers woke up that morning feeling that their hearts were strangely warmed with this new indwelling presence. It's not like that Spider-Man movie where Peter Parker wakes up after having been bitten by a radioactive spider and he discovers he doesn't have to wear his glasses anymore. Plus, he has a six-pack to boot. (laughs) No, the Spirit comes in such a way that there's public witness. There's public attestation followed by an immediate explanation by the Apostle Peter to the people of this event's biblical significance, how it fulfills the Scriptures. So the Spirit's coming is accompanied by three supernatural signs. First, a sound. Verse 2, suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven. So its supernatural origin is obvious. And filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's no actual wind. Rather, there's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, which came from heaven. And in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, wind is an emblem for the Spirit of God. Wind, breath, and spirit. That's all the same word in Greek. Wind, breath, spirit. So here we have a picture of the Holy Spirit himself coming from heaven. Second, verse 3. They saw what seemed to be, but was not, but what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And fire, of course, symbolizes the presence of God. Think of Exodus 3 and the burning bush. Or Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. So when Luke says the tongues like fire separated and came to rest on each of them, the implication is that the blessing, the blessing of God's presence in the person of his spirit is for each individual member of the covenant community. Friends, it's essential we see that. That's very important. It's not just the 12 apostles who are so favored. The Christian spiritual elite. It's not just the prophets and priests and kings. It's for all believers, from the least to the greatest. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them were possessed by God. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now I want to give that last part of verse 4 just a second run through in our minds. 
the first two manifestations of the coming of the Spirit, a sound like a rushing wind, the appearance of fire, uh, those two phenomena I just explained, it makes biblical sense. Uh, together, they represent the presence of God by His Spirit coming upon His covenant people individually. But what about this sudden ability to speak Egyptian? Right? What's up with that? <laughs> the new age of the Spirit has arrived, and so God's people start speaking foreign languages? Where's the connection? How does that follow? It's because this ability to speak in other tongues allows the disciples to declare the wonders of God in the foreign languages of their audience. And who is their audience? Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. Verse 5, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. It was an international, multilingual crowd gathered around these 120 Galileans, and Galileans had a reputation for being uncultured. Verse 9, Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and, other par- and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? They realize this is something special. They're not asking how are these backwoods hicks doing this? Like it's some sort of trick? <laughs> They're asking, what does this mean? They intuitively understand this is an event of biblical significance. And now the Apostle Peter stands up and he interprets this event in light of Old Testament scripture. We're moving to our second point now. And, and what Peter tells this Jewish throng is astonishing. First, he makes it clear to the skeptics that they are not drunk. This isn't the result of drinking too much wine. What they're witnessing is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, the majority of our sermon text this morning is itself a sermon. It's a sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. But remember, Peter is a man who has no formal theological training. Yet he's able to pull together strands of salvation history and Old Testament prophecy that escaped the most learned rabbis of his day. How is he able to do that? Because he's preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 26, we will call this from our John series a little while ago, but the advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, speaking to the disciples, which means Peter is a mouthpiece for the living God. And Peter tells the pilgrims, and the residents of Jerusalem, that they are witnessing a momentous event. The Holy Spirit, in these last days, is now being poured out upon all people, upon all flesh, not just prophets, priests, judges, and kings, as it was in the Old Covenant. 
And this is all in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Peter begins quoting that Old Testament prophet starting in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So according to the prophet Joel, according to the prophet Peter, what Joel was anticipating over 500 years before has now been fulfilled. Still quoting that Old Testament prophet, Peter says in verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And notice, Peter applies this Old Testament text to events occurring right at that moment. In Peter's mind, Joel's text describing the destruction of the cosmos is being fulfilled as he speaks that day. That's significant. Uh, It's a clue. It really helps us determine this text's meaning, and it it warns us away from, I think, reading this passage too literalistically. Because these folks in Jerusalem weren't looking up to the sky and seeing all these things being displayed in the heavens. The destruction of the cosmos language with, with falling stars, the sun darkening and whatnot, turning to blood, that's used frequently in the Old Testament. It's used all the time. It's found in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk, and this language is used by those prophets in reference to historical events, which from our perspective happened thousands of years ago. The language is figurative, it's symbolic, and it refers to the historical end of a sinful nation's existence through divine judgment and the emerging dominance of a victorious kingdom. Time and again in Scripture, this type of language is applied metaphorically to the end of various epochs or kingdoms during the Old Testament era, such as Babylon in Isaiah 13, Edom in Isaiah 34, and Egypt in Ezekiel 32. And it's standard prophetic language for what we would call regime change. Uh, Brothers and sisters, there's so much happening in Acts chapter 2, but part Part of what's transpiring with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the old order is being destroyed and the new order is emerging. Peter is telling this crowd of Jews from every nation under heaven, a new day has dawned. A brand new world is emerging. Taken as a whole, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Messiah, plus the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is the launching of God's full and final counteroffensive against all the sin and wickedness and death that entered the world at Adam's fall. Verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Beloved, Pentecost shows us like nothing else that the kingdom of God is already here. Satan's rule over God's people in this fallen world has now been displaced, displaced by the rule of the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ. And by the time Peter's sermon is over, he'll have told everyone that there's a new kingdom with a new king, with new citizens, bound to God in a new covenant in the power of the new age, the long-prophesied Holy Spirit. 
Now, at this point in the sermon, Peter's Jewish audience is very pleased. They like what they're hearing. I mean, what Israelite wouldn't want to live in the age of the long prophesied Holy Spirit? And of course, they're linking the overthrow of the evil regime with Rome. They're thinking, man, what a fantastic sermon this Galilean fisherman is preaching. What glorious days to be living in. Pontius Pilate's days are numbered. How wonderful that God has spontaneously decided today, randomly, that this new age should be inaugurated. Everyone's delighted. And then Peter throws a theological hand grenade into the audience. No, this new age of the Spirit was not ushered in spontaneously, randomly. It's been ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the man they killed 50 days before. Now the sermon takes a 180-degree turn. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. These verses immediately follow the Joel 2 quotation, which means Peter is connecting the two events. Peter is saying this new age of the Spirit and the subsequent regime change prophesied in Old Testament scripture has been ushered in through the death of Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited to the people of Israel as his Messiah, accredited by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he performed in their midst. And they killed him. They killed the Messiah by nailing him to a cross. They are responsible. They are at fault, even though, as verse 23 tells us, this all came about because it was God's deliberate plan. God is sovereign. Human beings are responsible. Now, try putting yourselves in the shoes of this Jewish audience. What is it that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years? To their understanding, what's the next item on God's agenda for the nation of Israel? What's the next big red-letter day? It's this wonderful new age of the Spirit that the long-hoped-for Messiah would inaugurate. That's what they've all been waiting for. And now, Peter's just told them that this new age has been inaugurated, but not in a way they ever dreamed of. This is a nightmare. It's been inaugurated through the murder of a man in which they participated, a man who was publicly endorsed by God himself to be the Messiah. Oh, and how do, how do the people react to this news? We read in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart. They were acutely distressed. They were deeply convicted. They had killed the Lord's anointed king. Something King David never dared do, even when that anointed king was the tyrant Saul. King David executed the young man who took credit for killing Saul, didn't he? Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. 2 Samuel 1.16. 
new city, the fear, the fear that would have gripped to seize this Jewish audience upon hearing this news is just, is just indescribable. Peter's sermon was sounding so nice up to verse 21, and now this. And they believe what the apostle is telling them. They know it's true. What they did was horrific. It was beyond comprehension. Many would have believed beyond the pale even of God's forgiveness. They were undone. They were doomed. And Peter makes it very clear that they are responsible in verses 23 and 36. The responsibility for the Messiah's death lies with them. Just, he throws out that hand grenade. But he's not finished yet. He throws out another hand grenade now, and it's his Easter Sunday salvation historical hand grenade. And it's this. God raised the Messiah they killed from the dead in accordance with Scripture. And he has been seen by witnesses. Verses 24 to 32. Now, I want us just to stop for a moment and think about that. It's fascinating. Every writer of New Testament Scripture, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, has a complementary perspective on the meaning, the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Different writers in the Bible emphasize different aspects of our Lord's resurrection. For instance, what does the Apostle Paul teach us about Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? We read some of that this morning in our responsive reading. Jesus' resurrection, brothers and sisters, it demands our resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. We are the full harvest. Otherwise, death is never defeated. And God cannot be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter, he takes a different yet complementary approach. By quoting Psalm 16, as he does in his sermon now, Peter is teaching that in raising Jesus from the grave, God the Father is showing the world that Jesus is the Messiah. Because the resurrection of the Messiah was predicted in Psalm 16. Peter cites Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, a psalm written by King David 10 centuries before Jesus' birth. And he quotes it to the crowd to demonstrate that the concept of the Messiah dying and then being raised to life by God is something that God always had in mind. This was always his plan. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and following. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Well, well, why? Why would that be the case? Verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Prayer, Psalm 16 is a prayer for God's help. 
And as it's cited in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 tells us that there's no need for the person in this psalm to fear in the tribulations that he faces. Why not? Because the Lord is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And because God is beside him, therefore, verse 26, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. But King David, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is not ultimately writing about his own person and experience. He's writing about the person his kingly office prefigures or is the type of or that his office points to the king of the Jews, Jesus, the Messiah. And the Messiah himself says that God will not abandon his body to the grave. Look at 26b. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. You see, it's the Messiah who says that. Jesus, God will not let his Holy One rot and molder and decompose. Therefore, Peter argues, resurrection, even an immediate bodily resurrection, is being affirmed in this song. Which means the Bible predicted the resurrection of Jesus ten centuries before it occurred. It was always God's plan. Jesus is the Messiah. It's indisputable. And then Peter goes on to explain in verses 29 to 31 that Psalm 16 can't be referring to King David. Because we could be reading that and think, well, that's just David writing about himself. He hopes for the resurrection to come. It can't be that. Peter explains why. Verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. It's here in Jerusalem. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Do you recall? What did God promise King David in 2 Samuel 7? Let me just read this passage. It's very important. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, so you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, God is not only promising that David's line will endure to the next generation, to the generation of Solomon when the temple is actually built. uh, He's promising much, much more. God is saying that David's dynasty will go on and on and on. It will be established forever. It's eternal. Which means we're really left with two options regarding how to understand the fulfillment of this prophecy, really. God could, I suppose, be talking about an endless succession of kings from the tribe of Judah forever and ever and ever world without end. That can't be the case, though. That's impossible because of the Babylonian captivity in 587 BC. After that date, there was no king in Jerusalem. There was no kingdom. It was gone. It was done. No, no, God's not promising an endless succession of kings from the tribe of Judah, but rather one king who is himself eternal. A king over whom death has no power so that he can reign eternally. Acts 2.31 Seeing what was to come, he, King David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, 
that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. See, David knows. It's only through resurrection from the dead that a son of David will rule forever over God's covenant people. Psalm 16 can't be referring to King David himself because his body, to be perfectly blunt, is moldering dust in a tomb. Peter's telling his Jewish audience, we know where his tomb is. It's right here in Jerusalem, and it's undisturbed, right? We know King David is still buried in there. But the stone covering Jesus' tomb is rolled away, and his tomb is empty. God did not let his Holy One see corruption. He did not abandon him to the grave as he did King David. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. We've seen him. Friends, hear me. God presents all of us today with two options. And it makes no difference our age, the color of our skin, our gender, our sexual orientation, or our religious heritage. All that stuff is immaterial. It's of no consequence. God presents all of us, whoever we are, with two options. We either... We either repent of our sins and believe in this historical eyewitness testimony. We believe what the 120 disciples saw with their own eyes as this 1,000-year-old Davidic prophecy was fulfilled in their presence. They saw the living, resurrected Jesus. Or we go on as before, as if Jesus' resurrection never happened. We go on living as if this is all just a story, a fable, a fabrication created of whole cloth. Those are the options, right? There is no neutral, middle ground, third alternative. Peter continues preaching about Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus is a mediator who shares God's presence, right? He sits at God's right hand and shares God's glorious authority. He pours out the Holy Spirit, a prerogative of God himself. No one else can do that. Which means for those with ears to hear, Peter has just told his monotheistic Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth is God. But if that's too cryptic an illusion, he gets very explicit in verses 34 to 36 and leaves no doubts. Jesus the Messiah, the man these people nailed to a cross, is divine. And in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, God the Father is going to make his son's enemies a footstool for his son's feet. Verse 34. For David did not ascend to heaven, but Jesus said, we saw him ascend. That's what he's saying. And yet he said, David said, King David said, the Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God 
has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Man, can can you imagine being told that you're responsible, not only for the murder of the anointed one, which is just a nightmare beyond comprehension, but of God incarnate. And that this same person who now sits at God's right hand will soon be making his enemies his footstool. As Peter says in another address in Acts 3.14, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you, Barabbas. Right? You killed the author of life. That's the sermon in chapter 3. <laughs> what Peter is preaching on this day is cataclysmically bad news. What hope is there, right? They're doomed, doomed, doomed. Verse 37, the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever noticed that at the beginning of a boxing match or an MMA match, how the two fighters, they meet in the center of the ring as the referee gives his instructions. And what's always happening as the referee is giving his, you know, no, no low blows, that kind of stuff. What are, they, what are the two guys always doing? Right? There's just, it's just macho posturing. They're, they're, actually, they're standing three inches apart, just like breathing on each other's face. It's kind of disgusting. But they're basically saying, you don't intimidate me one bit. I have nothing to fear from the likes of you. I'll just get right in your space here and not even flinch. You know? and, and there are people, there are people blinded by their own sin who adopt that same stupid posture to the exalted Christ. Maybe you're one of them. These people hear of Jesus' empty tomb, the eyewitness testimonies of his resurrection and ascension, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the apostolic teaching that Jesus now sits at God's right hand. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people, and he will one day make his enemies a footstool for his feet. They hear that faithfully preached. They read that in God's holy word. Yet they say in their heart, none of that intimidates me one bit. It has nothing to do with me. I have nothing to fear from the likes of Jesus. That has zero bearing on my life. That's certainly not how people reacted when they heard Peter's sermon, is it? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Which means they by God's grace, were sorry for their sins. They realized they had been stubborn and foolish, and they were conscience-stricken. They were remorseful. They were filled with a holy fear for God. That's always a good thing. That's a wise thing. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Sacrifice 10,000 bulls? Release 10,000 scapegoats into the wilderness? Verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Friends, the new covenant blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit, prophesied in Joel chapter 2, poured out at Pentecost 2,000 years ago, is a gift. To be indwelt by the third person of the triune God is not a blessing to be earned or merited somehow. But if we truly desire him, if we desire God in us, uniting us to Jesus Christ, we must repent of our sin. We must be truly sorrowful for our rebellion, our idolatry against God. And then turn in faith to the crucified and exalted divine Messiah, in whose name alone there is forgiveness of sin. Verse 39, the promise, that is, the promised Holy Spirit, the promised power of the new covenant age, the promise of the forgiveness of sin, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off Right, which develops Joel's promise of the Spirit's being poured upon all people, upon all flesh. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Loved ones, that's our Easter Sunday promise. That in Christ, we will be members of that new eternal covenant. God's promise that we won't be on the, the crushing end of God's justice gavel. We won't be made a footstool for Jesus' feet. Rather, we'll be on the winning side. We'll be forgiven sinners, filled with God's Spirit for all eternity. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Of course, it's not the ordinance of baptism that forgives sins. Let's be very clear about that. The Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. Rather, in the Bible, faith, repentance, and baptism are all related to the reception of the Holy Spirit. And any one of those four things can be used as a sort of shorthand that includes all four. In the book of Acts, you see it time and again, when someone receives the Holy Spirit, Luke is assuming faith, repentance, and baptism. They all go together and they assume each other. Once sinners have trusted in Jesus to save us from our sin, then we demonstrate our faith in the waters of baptism. Not just some Christians, not just those who feel like it or who get around to it at some point, all Christians. We're all to be baptized, uh, not as infants by our parents who are acting as proxies, but as a recipient, a spirit-filled believer, As this text makes clear, a repentant, spirit-filled believer. It's a command that Jesus has for his church. Because baptism symbolizes our unity with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's a declaration to the world that we've passed through the waters of judgment because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a testimony to the world that our sin has been washed away because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today and you haven't been baptized yet by immersion and upon profession of your faith, then 
Be obedient to Jesus' command and do so without delay. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Alex. We'll be delighted to start that process. Verse 40. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Friend, will you heed the Apostle Peter's warning this Easter Sunday? I wonder, how many times have you heard this same warning and yet thought in your heart, no, not yet. There's more, there's more sin to be indulged in first. I'm in the prime of my life, right? There, there's more personal moral autonomy to enjoy before surrendering my moral will to God. Besides, if I became a Christian, all my friends would think I'd gone off the deep end. My boyfriend, my girlfriend, they might break up with me. Actually, I might have to break up with them. My parents would disown me if I converted. Or perhaps you're thinking, I don't need to save myself from this corrupt generation. Everybody else may be corrupt. Everyone else may be in danger of hell and need Jesus to die on their behalf. But I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus to die for my sin. He needn't put himself out on my account. Friend, don't you see? The cosmic regime change has already passed you by. And the one you serve, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, has been displaced by the Prince of Peace. But here you sit, like one of those Japanese soldiers living in the jungle decades after World War II is done, still fighting for a defeated emperor. It's a lost cause. The power of the eschaton, the consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ, has invaded our present day. And you're playing for the wrong team. You're for the devil and the demons and all the forces of evil who exalt themselves against God and against his Christ. And if you die in your present state, you will be made King Jesus' footstool. You will be eternally humbled before your creator God, who this day, through the faithful preaching of his word, has stretched out his hand to you in salvation mercy. This world is going to be judged. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. On the day Peter preached this message, the Lord called 3,000 people to himself. On this day, perhaps he'll call one or two or three people who are here today. Today, friend, if you repent and believe in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, you will receive the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen.